This is an AMI podcast. I have such respect for artists in Canada, people who live with blindness and are doing what they love. Amy Amanti takes a deep dive into the world of art and accessibility. As an artist myself who identifies with having a profound sight loss, I am so keen to explore different art mediums and have discussions with people who are trying to say something with their art. Accessing Art with Amy. New episodes drop every other Thursday. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. People with disabilities have long turned to the legal system to seek redress for exclusions and unequal treatment. Some of the more recent lawsuits launched by people with disabilities deal with website inaccessibility. The targets of these lawsuits have ranged from the Canadian federal government to multinational pizza chains. This issue is critical to the blind and partially sighted community as more and more people come to rely on the internet. The bottom line is this. Though lawsuits remain important in advancing the cause of people with disabilities, there are a number of other strategies that go along with the legal victory. Education, policy change, mobilizing the media, and putting in place a grassroots campaign. Today, we discuss lawsuits as a tactic for disability advocacy. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. It's really great to be with you again and I hope that wherever you are, whichever part of the country you're in, whatever your circumstances are, that you're staying safe and that you're staying connected with your friends and family as we all weather COVID-19. I'd like to remind you about ami.ca forward slash COVID-19 off the top of the show because I think it's such an important resource where you can find in one place all of the coverage that we do on AMI-audio related to the pandemic. So if you heard something on Now with Dave Brown or you heard something on Kelly and Company, maybe even an episode of The Pulse that is relevant to the pandemic, all you have to do is head on over to ami.ca forward slash COVID-19 and you can find that segment or that show on that webpage. So I hope you'll check it out. It's a good resource. About 10 years ago, maybe a bit more than 10 years ago, Um, I had gotten my first ever quote-unquote job in radio at a local campus community radio station in Toronto. It no longer exists. Uh, It was called CKLN 88.1 FM. And every Sunday morning, I and a group of other women would host a show called Frequency Feminisms, Women-Powered Radio, Women with a Y, that was W-O-M-Y-N. And the reason I'm taking this little trip down memory lane is because um, I went through a very similar trajectory uh, on that show as I have here at AMI because I started hosting and then I went on to produce. And in my role as a producer for that show, uh, Frequency Feminisms, I was reading an article in the Toronto Star about a woman that I had never met who was fully blind, but who had completely impressed me with her gumption and her determination to see change for people with disabilities, particularly people who are blind or partially sighted. That guest was Donna Jodhan. 
And I invited Donna Jodhan on that show, Frequency Feminisms, 10 years ago to talk about her landmark lawsuit that was being filed 10 years ago to ensure that people who are blind or partially sighted would have access to federal government websites and to make sure that those websites were accessible. So 10 years have gone by. Um, I've had a few changes in my life. And I thought it would be a really good opportunity to sit down with Donna Jodhan and think about the 10-year anniversary of the legal victory, which is right about now. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the program my good friend and disability advocate, Donna Jodhan. Donna, Donna is the president and founder of Barrier Free Canada, as well as the president of Sterling Creations. Donna Jodhan is a voice that you're quite familiar with if you listen to this channel. But without further ado, Donna, welcome to The Pulse. Thank you very much, Joita. It's my pleasure, my honor, my privilege to be here, and thank you for um, helping us to go down memory lane. It's an important, I mean, I've done my bit of sort of reminiscing right off the top. That's You, you get to do that when you're the host of the show. You get first billing on, or first dibs on, on going down memory lane. But paint a picture for us, Donna. You've, you've put all this work into the legal case. Tell me about the day the decision came down. What went through your mind? How are you feeling? You know, Joita, that date, November 29th, um, 2010, is still so fresh in my memory. You know, every time I think about it, there are shivers that go down my back, up and down my back, and there are tears that come to my eyes, tears of joy, tears mm -hmm. of happiness, tears of, you know, I got to work with one of the best teams in the world to make this happen. But on the other hand, it's an embarrassment in a way in that we had to do all this work to convince the then government at the time that this had to be done. But mm -hmm. it was a day that I'll never forget. I, I, I remember waking up. We did not even know that the decision was going to be handed down on that day. And I remember getting the call from David Baker and his assistant, Michelle Kushner, and he says, you got to come down here now. We won. And, and I'll never forget it. Because people began to tweet, and the late Richard Kwan tweeted, a landmark victory for all Canadians, something that has resonated in my mind until now. And the tweets started to come. You had tweets from Kathy Moore, the late Kathy Moore at CNIB, Melanie mm -hmm. Marsden, Brian Moore, on and on we went, and Robin East, who was the then president of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. And there was no time to cry. There was no time to do anything. But thank God, I did this for the kids. It was always the kids of the future that I wanted to do this for. And just to step back very, very briefly in that I don't know what the heck I expected when we launched this lawsuit. I have had no idea. It was sort of going blindly along, but you know you had leaders or people to lead you, like David Baker and Yuta Traveranis. Mm -hmm. So they, they they led the team, and I was part of it. I, I give full credit to every single member of our team. And on that day when, you know, before going down to Mr. Baker's office, I remember my mom giving me the biggest brunch. I couldn't <laughs> eat at all. And, and she stood at the door saying, you know, you have to eat because if you don't, I don't know what time you're coming home. And she was right. So I went down and at times I just felt as if I was lost. I was just sort of swimming 
in a large ocean with fishes around me, happiness all around. And, and you know, there were good people around to sort of coach me, say this, don't say that, or, you know, think about this, mm-hmm. think about that. So it was a day that I will never, ever forget, and I'm eternally grateful to our team. Donna, why did you decide to fight this particular legal battle? What was the, What factors precipitated the legal case? You know, Joita, I've often been asked this question, and I would say it came out of pure frustration because in the early 2000s, like 2000 to 2004, I really wanted to work for the federal government. But there were so many roadblocks. The websites were not accessible. You tried contacting people within the various departments. Uh, you know, nobody seemed to really be interested. And after mm-hmm. um, a case I had with Statistics Canada, where they definitely were not prepared or ready to hire someone with a vision impairment, they did something very foolish in that they, they changed the criteria for one to apply. I thought enough is enough. And I started mm-hmm. asking, you know, what the heck do I do now? And it was Charlene Ayotte who said to me, you're going to go see David Baker. And she told mm-hmm. me that David was one of the leading disability rights lawyers in Toronto. I went to David and I said, David, what do we have a case? And he just said, you do. And this is when I decided that enough was enough. Let's go. And, and you know, he did all the paperwork and, and launched the thing. First of all, he gave them a chance to respond in late 2006. And they brushed mm-hmm. us off. So then he said, no, we got to go. And we did. Mm-hmm. It's a long journey for you. And we'll talk about, you know, what you've learned and how you've grown as a result of the journey. But Let's just go back to the decision. For those of us who don't remember the exact decision from 10 years ago, what did the decision say? First of all, there was the, the first decision at the lower court of Canada where it mandated the government of Canada to make all of its websites, especially so to Canadians with disabilities, accessible, usable, and navigable. The government Mm -hmm. then decided to take us to the Court of Appeal, which was later on. But this very first decision was where the judge said, you got to fix your websites. And and Mm -hmm. that was what they were mandated to do. But they later appealed this. But uh, for this particular anniversary, this is what happened at the lower court. Mm -hmm. And that's an important statement. That you, you that you know you mandate the government to make the websites accessible and usable and navigable for people with disabilities. So many times in our conversation so far, Donna, you've talked about the importance of having a team. Given kudos to your lawyer David Baker and others, talk to me. If, I mean, there might be people who are listening who are thinking, you know, uh, maybe I want to file a lawsuit. And there's a lot of frustration within the disability community. So that thought does go through people's minds. Uh, And, you know, for those of us who are thinking that way, what is the value of having a solid team around you? The value is that you have people who are standing behind you and beside you and even in front of you, helping you to understand exactly what you're doing, where you're going, why you're doing it, and how to do it. Doing it on your own really is, you're asking for big, big trouble. I don't think anybody could be successful doing it on their own. 
You need a team who believes in what you're doing, a mm-hmm. team who is committed. You cannot have a team that is sort of, well, I'm not sure, well, I don't know, well, what will the government do to me? If those questions cannot be answered, you don't have a good team. And I was very, very fortunate to have a wonderful team. And so if you think about the team, a big part of this, and you've alluded to this in our conversation, is the community involvement. So many people tweeted out on the day that uh, the decision was rendered. But even in the lead up to the decision, there was a lot of involvement from Canadians with disabilities. What was the impact on the community that you were undertaking this lawsuit on everybody's behalf? You know, Joita, the first thing I will tell you is that when we went to court, the judge noted three times that there were about 20 people from the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians sitting behind me. Not only them, but other people from, I never even met these guys. And of all ages, imagine there was a lady by the name of Bubbles Jacobs, now, I don't know Bubbles' real name, but we called her Bubbles. Bubbles was close to her 90s, and there was Bubbles in the court, right? So this mm-hmm. community was heavily involved. And you had people like the late Richard Kwan, who was the president of the Toronto chapter of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians there. You had Charlene Ayotte coming all the way from Ottawa to be there. You had people like John Ray and Robin East. They believed and they said, you got to do it. We have to do it. And, and that's how the community got involved. And even beyond Canada, you had people from the U.S., from England, from Europe, sending in their best wishes. This is what was overwhelming for me. I'm Joy Gupta, and with me is the founder and president of Barrier Free Canada, Donna Jotan, and we're reflecting on the 10-year anniversary of a landmark legal decision undertaken by Donna, uh, that talked about federal website inaccessibility for Canadians with disabilities. Donna, you mentioned that the government went on to appeal the lower court decision. What was the outcome of the appeal? They lost unanimously. There were three judges that sat in on this, um, on the, on the appeal at the court of appeal. And each judge unanimously said, agreed with the lower court. So the government was then forced to do something. And I will say that their websites are not fully accessible, not by any means, but they have made a conscious effort to follow the the, the court's ruling. Now, the decision from the lower court was sort of watered down quite a bit. Whereas it was mandated at the lower court, it was not mandated at the Court of Appeal. There were other bits of terminology used. But I would say that a lot of awareness has come out of this case, a lot of education, and and hopefully, you know, this this can be used to build on, on future actions. I mean, I'm I'm very sure that this case helped to spark the Campaign for an Accessible Canada Act, which is now, you know, in legislation. Mm-hmm. So, Donna, we've clearly had a long journey of 10 years, and so much has changed for Canadians with disabilities, uh, including the Accessible Canada Act. And one of the things that the Accessible Canada Act is sort of 
enshrines for Canadians with disabilities is this idea that nothing about us without us. Uh, and there's this less of a feeling of Canadians with disabilities are an afterthought, um, you know, given your experience with the federal government seeking a job 10 years ago, and more of a feeling that we really have to work proactively to eliminate barriers. Are you happy that that awareness piece has resulted in a shift in the way in which the federal government is thinking about and treating people with disabilities in Canada? Chorita, I'd like to see more awareness um, being shown, more interest, more understanding being shown as to the contributions that vision-impaired and blind persons or blind Canadians are able to make, are ready to make, are willing to make. Because mm -hmm. so often, you know, our community, the blind and vision-impaired community, is left out when it comes to engagements, when it comes to collaboration. Um, even at, you know, I'll just say it like at the provincial level, we were not consulted as far as COVID-19 mm -hmm. um, triage treatments were concerned. And I, I'm hoping that this was a genuine mistake. But, you know, as John F. Kennedy once said, an error is not a mistake until you refuse to correct it. And, and I keep seeing that these are not being corrected. So that is mm -hmm. my hope that somehow we could convince all levels of government that we're here and we have something mm -hmm. to contribute. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about, Donna, is the long process of bringing that legal decision to court, the long fight of then having to go through that decision going through appeal. And now all the work that you've done in the 10 years since on so many different files that are relevant to people with disabilities I want to know, how do you do it without burning out? What's your answer to to advocacy that is effective but also sustainable in the long term? I think, it, as Pierre Trudeau once said, politics is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> advocacy is not for the faint of heart. If, if for any reason you feel burnt out, I'll tell you what I've done over the last 10 years and it's not been easy because, you know, you get you get very different types of criticisms. You get constructive criticism. You get really mm -hmm. downright nasty criticism. You have to learn to ignore the nasty criticism. You have to learn to surround yourself with people who are going to give you advice, sound advice, advice that makes sense to you. Um, you get burnt out you know what, you take a few weeks off and you do other things. I, I play chess. When COVID was not here, I used to go ice skating. I play chess with folks in, in, in England over the, you know, via mm -hmm. email. So that is one way I, I cope. Um, I also write audio mysteries, and I do this when I'm burnt out. So you've got to learn to sort of spread things out. And if you feel that you're getting anxious and, you know, nervous and all that stuff, take a break. You have to learn when to take this break and when to return. And so Donna, as we sort of wind up our conversation, I think the question that I've really been wanting to ask you is this. You've spent a lot of time and put a lot of effort into a lawsuit. Are lawsuits for people with disabilities an end in and off of themselves? Like is the legal, is the decision, the legal vict and the, the legal victory what we're after? Or do lawsuits become a tactic? So it's a, it's a tool in the toolbox, and you've got to do all of these other things to, in fact, realize that legal victory. 
It is a tool in a toolbox. I would say, first of all, you try the collaborative way, you try the communicative way, but you're often often going to find people who will try to stop you from doing this by offering you, bri- you know, not bribes, but, you know, like uh, financial incentives not to go forth. And, and the federal government tried that, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, it's up to you how much do you believe in it. Do you believe that it is better to take that, you know, financial incentive as opposed to moving on. And this is a discussion I always had with the late Chris Stark, and he would advise me, he would say, think about it. What is your motive? Why are you doing it? And for me, it was always for the kids. you got to, I have to make a better future for our kids. If you don't have a commitment, if you don't have a motive strong enough, then, you know, you're going to be lost. As as far as legal lawsuits are concerned, again, it's not for the faint of heart, but sometimes it's the only thing to do. And I think in our case, it was because the government was not listening. So much to talk about and so little time. (laughs) Donna, in about 30 seconds, and I know this is a tall order, but in about 30 seconds, give us your vision of a truly inclusive and barrier-free Canada where people with disabilities are free to live their lives to their fullest potential? I don't think that there will ever be a perfect Canada, but I hope and pray that attitudinal barriers continue to, to slide downwards and that bridges continue to be built. And as Robert F. Kennedy once said, I dream things that never were and say, why not? And this is what I build my platform on. But how realistic it is, I don't know. (laughs) Donna, I'm sure with people like you uh, fighting the good fight, we will inch ever closer to that that, um, perfect Canada. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the program today. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for having had me. That was Donna Jodhan, the president and founder of Barrier Free Canada and president of Sterling Creations. We reflected on the 10-year anniversary of a landmark legal victory that required that federal governments make websites, federal websites, fully accessible and navigable for people with disabilities. It was a truly wonderful conversation I had with Donna. It's one of those chats where the time has really flown by. And if you wanted to go back and listen to it again, you can find the podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And while you're there, don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, maybe even write us a review. We would love to hear that. You can also go over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I've been thinking a lot about the value of the law as a legal, as a tactic for people with disabilities to try and move the needle on some of these really big issues, be it in employment, be it in accessibility, be it for housing. How do we use the law in a strategic way to further our goals? Um, I don't think that law reform in and of itself should be our end goal, but I do agree that advocacy is not for the faint of heart and that any kind of a rights-based project, any legal reform, any legal victory that we might have must be put in the context of a larger campaign and grassroots activism. 
So you can head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. And I'll probably have a few more things to say about that. I'd like to thank Donna Jodhan for being on the program today. The technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.com. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider. CA.